You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Julian, who is running a combination of Phoenix, Ruby on Rails, and .NET Core to create a service that helps musicians practice more efficiently. Julian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to actually pronounce your last name? Because I didn't want to butcher that one. Sure. So I'm Julien Blanchard from Paris, France. Okay. My mouth just does not make those shapes. So do you want to start us off by maybe introducing yourself a little bit and uh, letting people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to go over today? Yeah. So I work for an American company called uh, Make Music. And uh, they used to make the, a tool called Smart Music, which was a desktop app. And in 2000. 15 or 16, they bought a Parisian startup to help them make the uh, web version of the smart music, which is now called the new smart music. And it's an app that helps teachers and students and now music enthusiasts practice in front of their computers by giving them uh, feedback whether they are playing too fast, too slow, too high, too low, and so on. And there is... Um, there are algorithms that are calculating whether you, how great you played or not. And that can give you a score in an academic context or just give you feedback like whether you are playing good or not. Nice. Yeah, that sounds very handy if you're a musician. You know, I, I screw around with the guitar a little bit. And uh, yeah, having a tool like that would be quite helpful. And the uh, basic idea is not to replace the teacher at any point, but just help uh, whether you're a student or a teacher to practice more and uh, one of the core concepts of the company is the deliberate practice. It's a, a concept that you have to practice like 10,000 hours at something to become proficient in it. And so we just want to help people practice what they like and what they want to practice and become better at it, but never replace the, the teacher-student relationship and so on. Right. So it sounds like a tool where it's like you would practice what the teacher told you you should practice, kind of. Yeah. Or you, if you are just a performer in a non-academic context, you can just pick uh, a song in, the, in our catalog and just practice whatever you want for a concert or just for fun. Okay. So roughly like how many users or like how much traffic does this site get? So regarding traffic, it's really, and I don't have the figures for first, but we have like half a million users on the platform. And it really depends on the academic context or not. If you're an academic user, we get a lot of traffic when the exams are coming or when uh, the college band will be playing, everyone is practicing. But we can get some other period where no one is practicing. And now that we open the platform to everyone, we can see uh, more consistent traffic. And I would say it's like 1.5 thousand uh, requests per minute on average. Okay, so that's a pretty substantial amount of traffic for sure. Before we got on this call, you mentioned like you were using a combination of like Phoenix, Rails, and .NET Core. Do you want to just break down maybe like what those technologies are doing on the back end to serve this application up? Yeah. So the first thing, the authentication of the user is made through a .NET Core app and services. Then we have two backends in Ruby on Rails, one for the content. So everything you can display uh, sheet music-wise. And one for the academic stuff, the teacher 
student classrooms uh, relationships. And then on top of that, we have like uh, 10 JavaScript apps that are using all these backends. So yeah, in order to produce content that will be displayed in the Sheet Music app, we created a new uh, Phoenix and Elixir app because it was, uh, at first it was supposed to be an internal project only, but then we realized that we could open this platform to every publisher so they could directly upload their content to our platform to be displayed in our applications and be seen and used by many students. So we have a combination of uh, Rails, which is somewhat the legacy. It's only three, four years old. And Elixir, which is supposed to become the new norm. Just to maybe clarify that a little bit, on the Phoenix side of things, that's just more of like, like a middleman application to take data from an instructor or someone and put it onto your platform. Yeah, it's basically to create books and books can have uh, many uh, chapters, which are called movements. And all those movements are, can have many shit musics, one for the trumpet, one for the flute, one for the guitar. And so it's a tool that uploads everything and packages it, package it in a way that can be displayed in the app. Also, the company I work for, Make Music, created a standard for displaying music. It's called Music XML. It's a W3C standard that was created in the company. And so we have to uh, create those XMLs and parse files and add MP3s for the accompaniments and so on. Okay. But then when it comes also to the other side of the story, like what the end user would consume if they would go to your website, is that all just being served through uh, a combination of .NET Core for the auth as well as the Rails backend? Yeah. Uh, the consumer won't eat the Elixir part. The Elixir part is uh, only for creating content for now. It will change in the future, but, but the consumer will eat uh, JavaScript apps and it's a Rails API. We use the JSON API uh, standard for all our API endpoints. Okay. And then what about the front end to consume that API? Are you using like React or something like that? Yeah. So for the shit music application, we use React because there's a lot of uh, different components and it's not at all uh, your standard CRUD app. But for the rest, we use Ember.js, which works pretty well with Rails and the JSON API spec for everything related to basically displaying database records. Okay. So when it came to creating that one Phoenix service to do the ingesting of the data, what made you decide to use Phoenix in the first place besides just using Rails? Like, it seems like you already had a couple of years of experience with Rails. Like, was there something about that that you just didn't like and you wanted to try something new? Yeah, so it's been like more than 10 years that I work with Rails and I'm a big fan of uh, functional programming on the side. Yeah, in initially we just chose for fun since it was only for internal usage. But then it works so well that we can also use it for consumer usage. Okay. So now it's like you just need to clean it up a little bit or whatever to make it like production ready or is it kind of already production ready? I guess it it's production ready because uh, when we chose to use Phoenix and GraphQL, uh, initially we first started by giving us two months to make a proof of concept, but like a production ready proof of concept with monitoring, uh, observability in mind, and we wanted to, yeah, just to be sure that we won't be beaten in the end by something. And so we, we needed to have a production ready proof of concept just to validate the technologies that we are comfortable with it, that we can monitor the way we will use to monitor, we can deploy and so on. And we can have uh, bug reports. Yeah, well, that is definitely good stuff. 
So when it came though to picking Phoenix and Elixir, did you look at other things like Rust and Go, or were you just like, oh well, Elixir is this thing that might might look a little bit like Ruby, but it's not quite, but it's familiar enough, like that type of thing? Yeah. So we looked at uh, various stuff. Initially, since uh, most of the developers in the company were on .NET Core, we thought about F# Sharp. Well, I know I wanted to work in a functional language, preferably. So F# Sharp was a good candidate. But the front-end uh, side of the company wanted to use GraphQL, and uh, F# Sharp libraries for GraphQL were not production-ready at the, at the time. Then we thought about Go a bit, but I'm not really a huge fan of Go. It's not really... Um, mind-bending language, if I can say that. Sure. And since we were already using Ruby and Elixir was is really a nice language, quite easy to learn when you make some Ruby and are familiar with functional concept, we just yeah, settled on Elixir to try and it was a success. Nice. So were you the first developer to try it out then or no on your team? Yeah, I was the one making the, the proof of concept back in work and uh, deploying it. And it was such an easy task that yeah, we were quite convinced. And the same about the front-end part. They were really happy with the React and Apollo combination. It was really working well. Nice. So you have a whole bunch of different services running here. And uh, you talked about having like a .NET Core team. Like how many people are involved with developing this project? Uh, so we are about 20 developers, I guess, between Boulder and Paris. And it's 12 in the US and uh, 8 in Paris. And is that split up between a couple on the back end, a couple on the, on the front end? Yeah, yeah. On every side of the pond, there is uh, about half and a half, I guess. Okay. So how does this translate to things like number of Git repos? Do you just have like a separate repo for each project or how, how is it set up? So on the .NET side, there are many repos, but on the Rails and Phoenix side, we have only two repos, two, uh, two big mono repos. So one is for everything content related. So the legacy Rails backend, the new Phoenix app, and the JS apps that are displaying content. And there is another big mono repo around the academic stuff. So classes, users, teachers, and so on, and the exercises and the whole academic concepts. I don't know if you're, if you're going to know this number offhand, but like, do you know roughly like the size of these applications for each one? Uh, no. <laughs> No, I can uh, tell you the size for the backend part. It's like yeah. uh, every, uh, so the both Rails API are 20,000 lines of code, test excluded, and the Phoenix app must be 10,000 lines of code and 20 with the tests. Okay, so 20 with the test, that means you're writing about one for one, like for every line of code, you have like one line of test code maybe. Yeah, we are mostly trying to do test-driven development and applying best practices and testing is the something we carefully do, and even on the front end, like the the front end team is testing a lot, and that's something quite nice to work. So, how's that working out for you in terms of like going the TDD route? Do you find it like an enjoyable experience to develop that way? Yeah, I love it personally, but uh, I usually start with uh, what in the TDD world they in the TDD world they call a spike, like some experimentation. And then when I have a rough idea of the architecture I want to implement, TDD is really enjoyable to just write as much code as I need and not too much. Yeah. I wouldn't say that I'm straight up like a TDD person, but I really do appreciate that loop of being able to like 
you know, have a test fail, then have it work, and then just keep iterating on that. I like that. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I don't use TDD all the time. M most of the time, I, I would say I, I might test after, but it's the same feedback loop that you get. That, okay, let's make it pass and let's refactor it. Right. In the end of the day, as long as you have some tests, that's, uh, that's the important part. Yeah. So when it comes to the app itself, you mentioned having the API backend with some JavaScript on the front end. Is there something specific about your app that makes that style a good fit? Uh, yes, currently, because we display a lot of uh, live content, like music, uh, notes and everything. And everything is really dynamic and it was easier to um, have it run on a real JavaScript full-fledged app. And also it's uh, easier to develop, like we don't have to to be some kind of full-stack developers, which is a concept I don't really believe in for those kind of apps. And so everyone can, uh, we just decide on a contract on what the API should return and how it should be consumed. And then we can work uh, pathways. And just since we respect the contract, everything works pretty well, usually. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Like I'm trying to just visualize maybe a little bit of like what your app would look like when you're using it. Is it basically like, like a white page with sheet music and then the notes kind of just move from left to right in real time and then you just play or whatever? So you have the sheet music like in uh, black and white, like a paper sheet music. And when you reach recording, it's evaluating you in real time. So the note becomes uh, yellow, red or green and can move up or down if you're too, uh, too low, too high and stuff like that. But it's really real time. So it's, it needs to be a full-fledged app uh, running in your browser without interacting much with, with the backend when you are practicing music. Okay. So like going back to like the Phoenix world, you know, this doesn't seem like it would be that good of a fit to use something like Phoenix Live View, right? It could have been, but since we are used to uh, segregating APIs and, and front-ends, it just uh, works pretty well like this. And uh, using GraphQL is really pleasing for this, since we just agree on what uh, the schema of our data is. And the front-end can decide what you want to consume and how you want to consume it. So I'm not super well-versed with GraphQL. Do you want to just go into a little bit of like how styling your API like that is more beneficial versus like a REST API? Sure. So uh, yeah, coming from the Rails app, what we usually do is having some endpoints that have some fixed uh, response in some way. You can optionally include some other object, but basically you request an object and you get this object, the full object, and maybe you want only two fields on this object. With GraphQL, you can query objects and relationships, and for all of the objects or the relationships, have only the subset of fields that you really need at the moment, and not get the whole JSON and then filter it, and so on. So the front-end can really query what it needs for a given uh, screen, and we don't have to develop some uh, specific endpoints or serializers. We just agree on the schema, on the world uh, schema of what's available through the API and what relationships are available, what fields are exposed. And then the front end decides what it wants to consume and when. Okay. So it's a much more dynamic way to get data back without having to set up like those endpoints for each one. Yeah. And I don't have to, um, on the backend side, I don't have to serialize manually every object for every uh, app in a different way. I mean, 
on the rail side we have for the same objects we have like 10 different serializers because every app doesn't need the same stuff for a given object and thanks to graphql every app can query exactly what it needs so we have a smaller payload and on the backend side i don't have any work to do besides exposing those fields at some point nice but still on the server side you can always restrict what the client is allowed to get back right like you wouldn't want to maybe expose like uh i don't know like the ids or something like that like your database ids yeah for sure but let's take an example of uh, a book maybe at some point i want a whole book with its author its publisher and so on and for another view i just need its title on race i should do two serializers one for the full book details let's say and one for the book title and with graphql the front end can query okay i want a book with the author and the publisher and for another app, you can create a book with I just need the title. And the JSON will only contain the title. Ah, okay. Very cool. And without me having to develop something specific. Yeah, and that's like the important part, right? Not having to write lines of code. Yeah, and we just share a common uh, object relationship schema. So, and yeah, one of the points of uh, GraphQL is that the schema that you define with your objects and their relationship is discoverable by the client. There is an endpoint where the client can query, okay, what's the schema, what's available to me? And then we share a common schema, like somewhat a type system between the front end and the back end of what's available, what's the types, what's mandatory, what's optional. And it can be done all at once and we don't have to take care of this after defining it. Nice. Yeah, it's almost like a, like a self-defining contract once you set up the actual contract, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. So switching gears a little bit from the front end, do you maybe want to talk a little bit more about the rest of your tech stack? Like, are you using Docker, like databases and stuff like that? Yeah. So we are uh, on the backend side, we are not using Docker for development, but the front end side is using the Phoenix app in the Docker containers because they don't have to touch the backend usually. And it's better for them not to have to install a whole Elixir stack and so on. Uh, regarding deployments, we use Docker and Kubernetes for this specific app. Now, besides Docker, we'll get into that for sure about like how you're deploying that. But um, are you using like Postgres or some other databases? Uh, regarding data stores, we use uh, Postgres for the main relational data. We use Redis a lot, and we also use InfluxDB. Do you want to give uh, the TLDR and what InfluxDB is? Yeah, so uh, InfluxDB is a time series database. So it's basically if you want to store data uh, on a timeline to make. Um, so we usually use it to track it, the practice. So the teacher can know how long the student practice, how often they practice and so on. So you send a data point that will be stored at uh, now a given time stamp. And so you, yeah, it's made to store timestamps basically with values. And you can easily aggregate, average, uh, some those kind of operation. That would be more consuming on the relational database. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, did you try doing it with Postgres first, but then the data set was too big, or something like that? Uh, no, we we knew from the from the from the start that the data set would be too huge for Postgres. And having in a previous company already used. Um, I don't remember the name, but uh, pre-influxDB database. It was a nice experience and really fit the jobs well. 
like if you want to switch a view from uh, daily uh, from uh, give me the data for the day for the week for the month it's like almost instant is that even with like many many millions of entries it's really yeah it's really made to scale time series yeah because you mentioned having like you know maybe maybe half a million users and yeah if people are practicing and the thing is getting logged every like second or two yeah that's going to be a ton of data right yeah, yeah, really. It's really too huge for an SQL database. It wouldn't be a good fit to query such big tables. We would have to cache it and... So do you have any caches that you have set up? Yeah, we use uh, Redis for caching with uh, on AWS uh, Elastic Cache because it's a good fit in general for caching. So we cache stuff like um, teachers can see a grid of all their assignments and all their students and have um, colors say telling them whether the assignment was completed reassigned uh there is something to grade or something this kind of data is like querying almost all the postgres database so we do it uh, as a background job and cache the results for the teachers that makes sense so are you using all sorts of like built-in rails goodies to do that caching uh actually not really <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we use the, the, the Rails cache goodies, but everything is done through uh, ECS, the, which is um, uh, the LWS uh, queuing system. Uh, not ECS, sorry. Not, not ECS. I'm... Yeah, SQS, right? SQS, right. <laughs> so we use, yeah, uh, AWS SQS for, as a queuing system. And we also have some RabbitMQ for uh, data synchronization between uh, the host part and, uh, and our backends. Okay. So going through the rest of your stack here, do you have like Nginx in front of the Rails application or no? Yes, we have. We are deploying the uh, Rails APIs on Elastic Beanstalk. So there is an ELB in front of Nginx in front of Rails. Okay. And what we was the reasoning don't choose... Sorry, go ahead. No, we, uh, we use ELBs because at the time we created them, ALBs were weren't... Mm. Yeah, I remember that. ALBs were... When were they introduced now? A couple of years, right? Maybe yeah. three years ago? Two. Two. And yeah, and if you were to change, we have to destroy everything and start from scratch. And we will do it, but not today. Yeah, if it's one of those things, right? It's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but at some point, you got to bite the bullet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we're starting to have a need for it, like preventing some like uh, DDoS stuff and that you cannot really do with ELBs and like uh, banning uh, an IP range or something like that. Yeah, I know the ELB is pretty limiting. So when it comes to AWS, did you take a look at other cloud hosting providers or did you just have some experience with that one to use that? Uh, at the time when the app was started, we, so the, uh, Amer the Make Music uh, in the US were already using AWS. And four years ago, AWS was clearly a leader. There was like no really, not really a, a competition. And I still think today AWS is still much more advanced than Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure. And we are pretty uh, happy about this choice. Yeah, no, AWS is a great platform. When you want to start hooking together all those different services that you use. Yeah, and it it's really works well. It's pretty well documented. You can get help from Amazon or Stack Overflow or whatever. So are you using then their managed database, like RDS for Postgres? Yes, we are using um, their Aurora Postgres version, which is their version of Postgres, which is 
fine tuned for their environment, which is cost to be less and have some many nice things like uh, master slave stuff is handled for you and auto scaling and everything. You, so it's RDS plus plus. Let's say. So when you say like master slave is handled for you, so I've never used that service before. Did they just give you, you know, a single like URL that becomes you know your connection string for Postgres and you just don't have to worry about anything else? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Man, that's quite nice because you know scaling Postgres or any SQL database, well, most SQL databases, like it's very very hard to do. Yeah, and they have a Postgres version and a MySQL version, I guess. So this is lagging a bit regarding the latest Postgres, but it's basically a fine-tuned Postgres, I guess. I'm not sure how it's implemented, but it's on top of Postgres or MySQL if you ever needed some MySQL specificities. But. By the way, speaking of Postgres and scaling, I know what was at Rails 6, it just started to have that like ability to select multiple databases depending on if you're reading or writing. Is that something that you do or no? Yes, we do. And it works pretty well. <laughs> it's always good to hear. It works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really... Uh, we used to, uh, in a previous company, use the uh, Octopus gem, I guess it was called, which was basically providing this feature to Rails, but it was not really great. And now, I mean, it's been less than a year, I guess, we switched to it, but we didn't have any issue with the master slave. Nice. Yeah, I still think, like, you know, it's really hard to beat Rails for some things, like things like this, you know, where some some high traffic company actually merged that into Rails at some point, And it's like, now you get to take advantage of that. Yeah. Now, Rails is really great to release something fast and quality with a good quality because the framework is really well thought and has really great tooling regarding testing, regarding everything. It's really a, a great tool, but... I'm starting to like Phoenix more. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, what I like uh, about Phoenix is the the way the um, the way you split code not by what it is like a model or controller or view, but by its context. Yeah, so Phoenix contexts are a way to I say the a way to use uh, domain driven development. Like you can isolate code regarding a specific domain, and not uh, by its class or superclass. And I find it more um, elegant and uh, pleasing to work with every day. Like, I know I have something to do with, I don't know, authentication. I can go to the authentication context and I have everything there. Yeah, that's definitely nice. So I'm working on a, a Phoenix app now and I have a couple of contexts. And yeah, I just know that down the line, you know, six months from now, it's like what you said exactly. Like when you want to work on that one thing, you know exactly where you need to go and you're not dealing with like 400 models in a folder. Yeah. But then you have another problem, which is some context becomes too big. And I'm still unsure on, on the best way to split it in smaller context. But Yeah, I haven't gotten to that point yet. I imagine I will. My biggest problem so far is almost like the opposite end of that spectrum, where it's like just figuring out what to name the context, what to put in there, becomes like an unlimited like bike shedding situation, you know? <laughs> Naming is odd, as usual. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> So for the Phoenix app, we currently have almost 10 contexts at the moment. And one is really taking like 80% uh, of the code. <laughs> so it's starting to become a problem. Which one is that out of the 10? Uh, it's uh, the one related to the content. So it's uh, basically it was the context to store 
books and movements, which are book chapters, and the sub-objects related to books that links them to uh, parts that are shit music files. And this one is becoming the main one. I mean, we have to create content. So I still need to figure out how to split content in smaller context, but it's really a domain in itself. It's really the content that we are displaying. It's hard to split it, but everything else is quite nice. We have some like uh, authentication context. I have a caching context. I have a licensing context because we uh, we deal with publisher licenses. Like you can open this book if you're in the US, you cannot if you're in France, something like that. I have a logging context to everything logs related. I have a current user context to everything that is related to the current user, for example. An upload context to upload files and so on. Hmm. By the way, so when it comes to uploading files, are you using that one library called Arc or Waffle or something else? Uh, I'm using uh, EXAWS. Oh, okay. So just directly using that? Yeah, directly uploading to S3. And there was, there was no need to a more expensive library so far. We we are kind of used to use AWS pretty extensively, so uh, bare bones AWS libraries enough for now. So when it comes to uploading those files, do you need to do any type of like transformations to them after they get uploaded, like resizing an image to a thumbnail or something like that? Uh, not now, but it will happen sometime in the future. But for now, we force the user to upload with a specific size. Oh, okay. One specific stuff we do regarding uploading is sometimes you have to upload the same file for many, for many instruments, let's say. Like the sheet music is the same for the flute, for the trumpet. And so we use, uh, we do the copy on S3 directly, like we upload the file only once and then we let AWS copy the file for us everywhere it's needed. So going back to the AWS side of things, you said you're using Kubernetes. Are you using their managed EKS service or something else? Yes, we are using uh, IKEAS, and it's the first app that we deployed on IKEAS. Uh, we push our Docker images to ECR. And for some uh, Rails background workers, we used to use uh, ECS. But uh, yeah, Kubernetes is the way to go for us. And we'll try to move everything towards Kubernetes. So is that an ongoing thing then now where you're going to try to move some of the stuff off of ECS onto EKS? Yes. And yeah, the main goal is to be able to use App Mesh, to be able to have a service mesh and deploy everything easier and replace like services as we want without disrupting everything. Right. Do you maybe want to go into a little bit about uh, what that service mesh is and how it works on AWS? Not really, because I don't really know how it works for real. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk a little <laughs> bit about Kubernetes then. Not even specifically about Kubernetes, but like how many servers are in this cluster that you run? So we have a clusters with two big uh, instances for now, because there's only the the Elixir app running on it. Okay. Do you know the number, like how much RAM or CPU is on, on those boxes? I'm not sure. It must be something like uh, eight gigs of RAM on those machines, but it's clearly overkill for, for, the, for the need at the moment. So when it comes to the actual Elixir service itself, do you have any constraints defined in like the Kubernetes YAML files, like saying, you know, only use, you know, a gig of RAM or whatever? Not yet. We are still experimenting with the load that is increasing to see how we should fine tune it. So at the moment it uses whatever it can. 
Okay. And that's also for the Rails uh, service as well, right? Like nothing is hard locked into a specific constraint? No, for the Rails app, it's uh, deployed on Elastic Beanstalk. So Beanstalk takes care of it. We have some hard up limits, but we so far don't haven't needed to increase them or we have some auto scaling a little. So how many servers usually run on that with your half a million users roughly? Uh, regarding EC2 instances, we have uh, almost 20 instances running most of the time. Oh, wow. Are those also like around eight gigs of memory for each one or no? No, 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 no. Only the, the Kubernetes cluster and maybe the ECS cluster would be quite big. The JS apps are deployed on uh, code via code deploy, so I don't think they have some really small instances, like maybe I don't know, just to serve some uh, static assets. But yeah, K- Kubernetes is using the, the most resources. Right. So speaking of static assets, do you also have like CloudFront in front of this or no? Uh, yes, for like book covers and stuff, but not that much since content can be updated most of the time. Like uh, the the app, the Elixir app allows also to update the sheet music via uh, another JS apps. But yeah, there is some fine tuning regarding the notes, like some notes can be not really well translated from the paper to the file version. And so sometimes you have to adjust a little and so on. And so those are pretty much not cached because you always want a, a fresh version. Right. That makes sense. So you also mentioned uh, a minute ago using code deploy. So maybe now would be a good time to talk a little bit about like, what does your deployment process look like, right? Like you're primarily the developer who's writing the Elixir code and, and Ruby on Rails code, right? Like how does stuff get from your dev box up until running in production? Yeah. So we use uh, GitHub Actions for everything, almost, like running tests, running linters and so on. And when everything passes, the, the GitHub Actions triggers a Jenkins that we have that will be used only for deployments. This Jenkins is also on an EC2 instance, so we, we don't have to we don't have to share our AWS credentials with GitHub. And this Jenkins will deploy either the Elastic Beanstalk, the code deployed, the ECS, or the Kubernetes stuff, depending on which app needs what. That's pretty complicated deploy process. Did you roll all that together yourself then? Uh, no, yeah, no, not just only me. We used to be on a full Jenkins. And since GitHub Actions were out, we moved the testing, linting, uh, and so on to GitHub Actions. And next step will be to get rid of the Jenkins. But since GitHub Actions don't really handle secrets well for us, and we don't want to share some of our credentials with them, we still have to have some in-between machine to do the deployments. Okay. So do you want to go maybe a little into that? About like what, what is its shortcomings with GitHub Actions when it comes to dealing with secrets? Uh, it's quite simple. You can basically show secrets <laughs> for any app in the GitHub action. Like you can echo uh, an environment variable. You can try it for yourself in any open source project. Hmm. That's really surprising. So I haven't used GitHub actions yet and uh, they just let you blindly echo things out like that. Yeah. I mean, they're working on it and they have something really soon, but at the, at the moment, I guess it's not really ready for prime time. Well, I'm not aware about it, I don't know. Right. So is it even like generally available now or is it still in the beta program? I think it's available for everyone. And it's really uh, a great tool. I mean, we don't just use it for CI. We use it for every kind of uh, 
action we need to automate regarding uh, pushing code. There's a lot of stuff you can do, like, uh, I don't know, uh, some stuff with dependent auto uh, updating dependencies and so on. There's a lot of actions you can do. And we're still thinking every time we think, oh, we should automate this. Usually GitHub action is really good for that. Is that what Dependabot is on GitHub or no? Is it just a GitHub action? Do you know that, that one um, feature of GitHub, right? Where it's like, when you push code, like it'll actually take a look at your dependencies, like, you know, yeah. your your gem file or whatever. And, you know, if something looks bad, like it's out of date or whatever, it will just open up a pull request and be like, hey, by the way, you know, this thing is outdated. Yeah, we use that. I suppose uh, behind the, the scene, it's a GitHub action. I mean, should be working with the same system on the side, but we use it a lot and it's really great tool. We have something like to update a GOIP database, something we can automate with GitHub Actions, for example. So is that something that gets updated for every code deploy? No, it's updated on a timely basis. I don't remember which one, maybe weekly. That's pretty cool. So GitHub Actions, they don't just need to be triggered from code deploys. You can just have them run in whatever schedule that you want. Exactly. Yeah, that's very cool. Because I've always been a little bit scared about deploying code through a git push, and that is the only way to deploy code. Because sometimes it's like you still want to deploy in a way that's outside the scope of you actually like committing and pushing code. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you have a like a big migration that can break everything, maybe you don't want to push everything via GitHub. And sometimes you want to decorate the, the code push from the data migration. So have you ever had to deal with anything like that with this project or no? Yes, actually, <laughs> we had to. We had to uh, migrate the way we store the users and their relationship to classes. And this is something like, yeah, we did uh, before pushing the code. With, it's induced some downtime, but it was planned downtime. And so it worked. Okay. We are not yet in a continuous delivery setup. This is something we would like to tend to go to. But data migration is a big blocker in continuous delivery, I suppose. Yeah. So when you had that planned downtime... Uh, do you remember roughly like like how long that downtime was? Um, less than an hour, I would say. Okay, that's not too bad. Yeah, not too bad, but still an hour. <laughs> yeah, and it's so tricky, right, to get things at the level where it's like avoiding that downtime. You know, like the app code that would need to be written to like make your app read only during that time or whatever is like, it's a lot of work. Yeah, we just um, uh, shut the app down so there couldn't be any... Um, writes during the, the migration and so on. And we don't have to deal with old and new data. It's like yeah, there was a maintenance page. Yeah. So now that, uh, you know, the app is up and running, it's not down for expected maintenance. Uh, like, what do you guys use for, like, error reporting and logging and metrics and things like that? So for logging and metrics, uh, we have a combination of uh, new relic and uh, uh, an ELK stack like uh, Elasticsearch, Logstash, and uh, Kibana. And regarding um, exceptions, we use Sentry, a self-hosted Sentry. Yeah, Sentry seems to be a popular one. Like many, many people are using that service. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's really a convenient service. It does everything we ever needed. So I know we tried uh, Bugsnag in a previous company, and Sentry does exactly the same stuff, but for free. Right. So when it comes to like logging and metrics, and you mentioned using like InfluxDB with, you know, a whole bunch of different timestamps being logged, do you go like as far as logging all of those 
individual timestamps as well or no? Like as a student is practicing or whatever, does like that get updated in real time in the logs? No, 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 no. We just uh, log the uh, API endpoints that are being hit, but uh, uh, user data is stored uh, either in Postgres or in Flux, but we don't log it. I mean, there are some privacy concerns first and we wouldn't need that kind of data in our logs. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, speaking of SaaS tools here and other stuff that uh, we didn't really get to yet, uh, I did take a look at your site before we hopped on this call, and I noticed that there was uh, like a pricing table, like this is a paid service that people can sign up for. Uh, what yeah. what payment gateways are you using? Uh, we are using Braintree at the moment. Okay. Do you want to let people know a little bit more? Uh, I'm really not dealing with this stuff. <laughs> Sorry. So like the TLDR and Braintree, it allows you what to accept credit cards as well as PayPal payments? Yes. And uh, before having Braintree, we were only on the academic market. And this was something that was not uh, self-serviceable. Like uh, when you're a teacher in a school, you don't have the, the school's credit card, for example. And so we used to have some uh, commercials and they were making some deals for a whole year and so on. Like uh, an old school business in some way. Now that it's open for everyone, everyone can pay mon- on a monthly basis uh, as a usual service. And Braintree was chosen, and I can't say why. Okay. Maybe it was <laughs> just to like, maybe it was to support, I don't know, both credit card and PayPal with one, one API, perhaps? I only use Braintree and Stripe, and I couldn't say which one is better for, for this kind of... That seemed pretty similar to me. But... Yeah, that makes sense. So... Speaking of like maybe other SaaS tools that you use, uh, what about for sending emails? Uh, yeah, we send emails through. Um, so marketing emails, I don't know which tool they use, but uh, application emails, uh, even for users, we send through uh, an AWS Lambda with AWS services. Okay, so you're using what is it? SES, right? Yeah. I, I'm sure. I'm quite sure my, the the marketing side of things is using is using some kind of SaaS product, but I couldn't say which one. Right, there's a whole bunch of them, like Mailchimp and ConvertKit and Drip and all these other ones. But it's okay. So, do you also send out like text messages as notifications or no? No, not yet. We are currently implementing some uh, in-app notifications, but uh, SMS notifications are not planned, and I don't think it would happen. But in-app notifications are something we are working on. And we started investigating on uh, WebSocket stuff with GraphQL and Elixir, which is a good fit for WebSockets. Mm. So did you look into using, I guess, well, like Phoenix channels for something like that? Yeah, so we uh, the GraphQL library is called Absent. And GraphQL has a concept of subscriptions. And you can uh, use those subscriptions uh, with WebSocket or server sentiment or even polling if you ever encounter an old browser. So when it comes to notifications for having that done in app, was that something that your customers wanted to have? Yes. Like uh, a student would like to know uh, I have a new assignment to do or uh, you have some assignment due in for tomorrow. I don't know. Those kind of notifications could be Andy. At uh, at the moment, they don't have them. Oh, okay. Those type of notifications don't even get sent out like over email either? Nope, not at the moment. At the moment, you have to log on the platform and you have a, the, the main, the first screen you see is a dashboard that's really, 
summarize everything you have to do or has been done. Right. So it's almost like your your customers end up having to do like a long polling to f- to figure out if they need to do something. Yeah, in some way, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and our first use case for besides notifica- user notification, another use case would be um, with the book creation app in Elixir. That uh, is that many people are working on the same book at the same time. And if we could reflect what someone has done on some screen to the other users that might be connected to the same screen, it would be really nice for them, like having some kind of, uh, let's say, Google Doc of the book creation app. Like everything is uh, dynamic and you see stuff moving in almost real time. Yeah, like that's a very good use case for something like that. Yeah, yeah, this is our primary use case. Like having a user notification is like nice to have, but that's not something uh, most of the users complained about. So just uh, switching gears a little bit again. So we talked about deploying the app and, you know, it's kind of up and running and usually you don't have downtime unless it's like scheduled. Like what do you do for like disaster recovery and things like backing up your database and like user files and stuff like that? So uh, being on AWS, we have uh, a lot of easy backup solutions uh, provided by AWS. Uh, we back our databases daily, I think. We don't back up the user content that is stored on S3 because we have faith in S3 not to ever go down since the whole AWS is based on S3. It's their file system, so it won't ever go down. So do you have any like alarms or alerts set up for if something goes wrong with your cluster or like the website becomes unresponsive? Yes, we use a tool called Victor Ops that can have many sources for alerting us. And we have uh, some on-call program between the developers and the ops. And we have uh, yeah, alerts coming from New Relic, some from AWS directly, some from Sentry. Okay, I don't think we talked about New Relic. Is that something you have set up in just the Rails app or in, in every application? Uh, initially, it was for the Rails apps, but then uh, they supported JavaScript apps, so we had them there too. And currently, the Elixir support for GraphQL is not that great, but it's coming. We have many stuff to manually push into their data store. There is some plugin that's being worked on that would provide us some, with greater insights because uh, using a GraphQL API, you have only one endpoint. You only post to one endpoint and the query is in the in the body. So you cannot differentiate between endpoints, what's being hit, what's being missed. So this can be an issue. And currently New Relic doesn't really show us the, the level of details we would like. I'm sure those tools will improve in due time, right? Yeah. So earlier you mentioned that one of the reasons why you do want to switch from ELB to ALB was to do some more like fine grain control with like IP bands and stuff like that. So have you ever had any issues with like denial of service attacks or just like malicious users being a jerk and you wanted to limit them? Yes, currently we have some. Like people want to uh, exploit our content and and we get a lot of traffic from weird IPs and that never stops and sometimes can prevent a deployment, for example, because we're using some kind of uh, blue-green deployment. And if uh, an IP keeps hitting the old version, the, never, the newer version won't be deployed since it's triggering errors. And we have yeah, to deal some with those kind of problems. Oh, man. And these are all things that now you have to deal with at the app level? 
Yes. Uh, at the moment, yeah, we dealt with them as the at the Nginx level in the uh, Beanstalk app. But having an ALB would ease the process if it were to happen again. Oh, yeah, I forgot almost with Nginx, there is like, what is their term for that? Like a blacklisting? Of, you can blacklist IPs, I guess? Yes, you can yeah, filter by IP ranges and redirect some IP range to something else. That's kind of interesting, right? It's like, not only can you just block them, but like you can redirect them in such a way where it almost becomes like, um, you know, getting ghost banned on uh, on Reddit or something like that. Like, you know, the user can think that it's still working, even though it's not. Yeah, <laughs> you can rather redirect them to themselves and then they will TGOS themselves in some way. <laughs> right. So now that, you know, your app is up and running, everything is going good for the most part. What would you say is like your best tips and lessons learned from developing this application? So the the lesson learned was that you really have to make a robust proof of concept before switching tech. I mean, the, the, the great part of the, the project was that we took two months to validate everything from uh, code to uh, deployment to observability to logging to everything. And once we cross-checked every everything, we knew we could really get onto developing the app with a new tech, whatever the tech is. And it's really something, yeah, spend the time up front and just don't follow the hype just for <laughs> blindly, I mean, just try it for real and just not push another world to do app tutorial kind of thing. Just do some stuff from real with the most complex part. Yeah, that makes total sense. Because it's so easy, right? Just to like, to get hung up on, like you see this Hello World app, like that to do simple, simple app working and it looks so great. So you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to use that tech. But then it's like, as soon as you try to do something like, well, how do I, you know, do this, this and that, like some real complicated thing, it almost becomes like almost impossible. Yeah, exactly. And that's the the first uh, use case we took for the our proof of concept was uploading files. And we knew that when we have uploaded files uh, implemented, like... Uh, showing an interface, uploading a file, listing the files uploaded. We have almost all the basics covered and we knew we could go farther if the, if it was satisfactory. And it was. Nice. It's always nice when your tests work out to where, how you would like them to. Yeah. <laughs> so when it comes to like, you know, best tips and lessons learned, like there's the other side of the story too, where it was like, you know, maybe what are some mistakes that you've done in the past that you were, you know, able to detect and fix, like coding-wise or apps-wise? Uh, coding-wise, I, I would say the the mistake is uh, using your old re, uh, habits in the new tech and not uh, doing what the, as the Romans do in Rome, if that's an expression. Like uh, some, you have some uh, object-oriented... Uh, habits that, that do not translate well to the the functional way of Elixir. And sometimes this can lead to uh, performance issues. Sometimes like with, it's sometimes better to use recursion than to use a, a loop. And with GraphQL, one mistake we have is, we have done is like uh, having too much N plus one queries. And we didn't really handle that well at the time, but there is a pattern for GraphQL that's called data loader. It's a pattern that was made by someone at Facebook, I think, since GraphQL comes from Facebook too. 
and it's basically lazy loads all your records and determines the best path to avoid doing too many requests for you and uh, batching the requests for you. But that, yeah, the, the, the initial version was a, were having a lot of n plus ones, and if you're traversing the object relationship like I don't know five or six level dips, it can really get slow. So you know I haven't really worked with GraphQL, but I know on the Phoenix and Elixir side of things, you can do you know you can like preload stuff like explicitly. Is that something that you just can't do with GraphQL? I guess like well, how could you right? It's like you don't know what to preload until after, I guess. But exactly, you don't you you don't uh, you don't know what the client the client will request from you, and every request can be somewhat different. So you cannot really you have. Either you can preload everything, but it's not really. And this data loader pattern basically will analyze the query for you and determine the best path to make the request for you in conjunction with Ecto. But we use a lot of Ecto preloading almost all the time. And we use a lot of Ecto multi, which is a concept that is a bit like a, a monadic transformation or a transaction. Like when you have a sequence of operation that where any of the operation cannot fail and when you want to roll back everything and it's really a, a nice pattern. Right. Doing like a, a database transaction across multiple things. Yes. And with your code and not only database stuff like you can, yeah, sequence of operations. And if any of the operation fails, you roll back everything. Yeah. That's a really powerful concept. And like, Going back to like, you know, things that aren't toy examples, right? Like that type of stuff happens all the time in, in real world apps, like needing to do that. Yes, all the time. I mean, every, everything is always harder than the, than the tutorial. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. we would, wouldn't be employed. But <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so Julian, thanks so much for coming on the Running in Production podcast. You know, it was really great having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really a great time. So before we wrap this up, uh, do you want to share any links to maybe your site or a GitHub profile or anything like that? Sure. So you can find my site, which is hasn't been updated in quite a while, but it's at julianblanchard.com. It's a blog, and I've wrote mainly about Emacs, Rust, and some F-Shop. I also have a GitHub account as julianxx, where you can find some of my open source stuff. And I also have another account on SourceHut, which I will replace my GitHub with at some point. I really like SourceHut, by the way. If you don't know it, check it out. And it's Julian XX also. Yeah, very cool. I don't know what that one is, so I'm going to have to look it up and put that one into the show notes. Yeah. SourceHut is basically a Git as it was meant to be, where you send patches by email and you discuss pull requests by email. And it's really a, a nice tool. Sounds good. So thanks again for coming on, Julian. Thanks a lot, Nick, for having me. Yep, no problem. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.